Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Well, welcome everyone to this ITAM Review Podcast. I'm Rich Gibbons and with me today is Paul McAdam, Director of Source Code Control and All-Round Good Egg. Uh, Paul, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, about you and, and what you get up to. Uh, thanks. Uh, All-round good egg always makes me feel like Humpty Dumpty or something. And I'm, I'm on sort of <laughs> Well, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my name's Paul McAdam, Director of Source Code Control. Of um, I, Some people might recognise the name and be thinking Microsoft, because there is a bit of Microsoft in my history. Um, and I'm not quite sure, does, is, Rich, is that gamekeeper turned poacher or poacher turned gamekeeper? Um, um. That's, a, that's yeah. a good question. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Oh. One or the other. Anyway, but um, what, <laughs> what we do uh, as an organisation is uh, we we help companies with their uh, software risk, and we do that in two areas. We do kind of cloud economic stuff, so we scan environments and help uh, companies to figure out the the costs and the best way of moving to the cloud. And then the other part we do is we we help organizations uh with their own application development and we, we scan their code and we're looking for you know issues related to to security to licensing which people we'll talk more about that but people don't always associate licensing in that in that uh, realm uh copyright and which people normally ignore and then code management um and it's actually really really similar to the software asset management process in, in both uh both of those realms it's kind of like the evolution sam i don't know version 3.1 or 4.0 or something like that it's a, it's kind of like the new stuff in in the sam world i like to think so so you mentioned a, f- a few different things with, with you know the cloud economics and the open source i think open source is probably the the best place to start and and you know might might indeed take up all our time today because i think for me you know, so I used to be a reseller, as you know, and you know, open source was never a, a concern um, for us or, or seemingly for our customers then. Um, it, I, you know, I can see that it's becoming more and more of a thing. Is that because of a, a change in how open source is done or is it simply just people like yourself working to, to, to raise up the, the awareness of open source and the potential dangers? Actually, that's a brilliant question. Straight off the bat, Rich, you're asking me the, the, the hard questions. I like it. Um, I think it's a culmination of a whole bunch of things coming together, actually. You know, if you talk to people, you say open source to people, they think, you know, the the, the, the person wearing a hoodie, because, you know, hackers always wear hoodies, you, you understand that, um, in, in their bedroom or in their garage, you know, writing some code and that becomes something that's shared on open source because, you know, they... They just love writing code. Um, and and that might have been relevant sort of 15 years ago. But, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, 95, 96%, depending on who you listen to, of all code bases include open source components. Um, 
we've got lots of companies who are monetizing open source. So you've got uh, IBM have just, you know, paid slightly more than you get paid on an annual basis for Red Hat, um, which is obviously open source software. Um, and, and that's just one example. I mean, you know, Microsoft have got open source uh, software. Google do lots of stuff in the, in the open source world. Um, and I think it's really a case of it's just sort of matured over the last 20 years. And it's got to the point now where open source software is the way that application, application development is done. And then what we've seen uh, are issues coming in related to uh, security, uh, related to licensing. Um, and, you know, people need to start managing those risks for companies. You know, by, by the time you get a couple of big brand names getting sued for doing something wrong, um, then obviously people start taking notice because it, it starts affecting, affecting your jobs. Um, and I think we're probably just at this, the, the leading edge of that. I mean, if you look at the stuff that we do, it's very, very similar to software asset management in 2003, 2004. It's about trying to find the right tools. It's about trying to find the right processes. Um, there's not an international standard at the moment, but there will be in sort of 12 to 18 months. And it's about trying to tie all, all those things together. And, and of course, when you, when you get those things together, you get, you get something that people can work to and that, that, that people can deal with. So you mentioned there about uh, international standards. So is that a, like an ISO standard for open source? Yeah, so the, I mean, it, it's similar, I guess, to ISO 19770, which everybody will have memorized, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's built on the, if, if you want to go and read about it today, there's a thing called the Open Chain Group, which is uh, backed by the Linux Foundation, and they are working towards uh, building out an international standard, so an ISO standard for the handling and management of open source software. Um, and and it, so it'll be it'll be very similar to, I would suspect, to you know what we've seen with um, with software asset management. One of the key things I think um, my sort of top tip or a top tip uh, is that. Um, the people that are listening to this, it's kind of like you really need to understand which open source it is that we're talking about. So you get software titles like OpenOffice and Red Hat Linux and all that kind of stuff. And, and from that, people might say, well, that's easy because that shows up in my discovery tool. Yeah, so that is true. And there are issues with that software. Um, and then there's a second set, which is software capabilities like MySQL. Uh, MongoDB, those kind of things. I mean, for example, MySQL is owned now by Oracle and it's got two different licensing, I think called dual licensing. It's got two different licensing types. You can license it as a, as a kind of free product um, under the GPL license. And then you have to adhere to certain constraints and you have to manage updates yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can buy a license, a commercial license from Oracle where they'll, choose not to not enforce the constraints of the GPL license. So effectively, you can, you know, you can give uh, Oracle some money to use the product in a, in a different way, in the way that, which you want. So that's the second set. And then the third set is development components. So things like jQuery, uh, Zlib, or Zlib, I guess the Americans probably call it, um, and, <laughs> and iText. And um, I chose those really carefully because um, some, you know, jQuery and uh, Zlib have been around for ages. There's multiple, multiple versions of those. 
uh, and obviously developers need to make sure they're managing those uh, they're using the right current versions um and because those have changed licenses over the years that they're adhering to licenses and then you've got things like itext where again it's owned by a commercial organization who will give you a free version but there's a dual licensing uh, aspect to that as well so they will ha quite happily sell your license um, in order to have greater features and functionality and that that all needs managed you know th those components um need to need to be managed within the code they need to be updated just like your software needs to be patched and updated but the the primary thing to be able to get there is to understand which components you've got in use and it, it, it feels, yeah, okay, no problem. I'll just wander down the corridor and I'll go and ask the developers what components we're using. Um, but you'll probably find that, you know, they're using hundreds of components across the different apps that they've got in place. Um, there's two and a half thousand different open source licenses for people to choose from. So that, that makes it a little bit complicated. Luckily, there's about 30 key ones. So we, we can kind of focus in on that. And at least they're, you know, it's not, they're, at least they're pretty templated. You know, it's not like uh, every product has got a different license. Right. Um, and that, that patching and security mechanism, um, I think is probably the bit that, that where people will struggle a little bit or, or will not recognize as being uh, a software asset management responsibility at, at the moment um you know once it's once you've identified the components and you've got to keep it up to date you've got to make sure there's no vulnerabilities etc um but but that's the that's the challenge in a, in a nutshell is is how you understand what your company's using and, and what risks it might bring to you oh blimey um <laughs> so, so, so it's not a not an overnight job at all then um so it sounds quite similar to what uh, you know a traditional asset manager will be doing, but also totally different at the same time. Um, and am I right in saying, and I might not be, that you know with with traditional software licensing, you kind of your main worry is being audited by you know the vendor, but with, with open source, it seems like maybe the security side of things is perhaps a, a bigger worry than, than any sort of audit or, or, or that side of things. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you're right. It is software asset management, but not as we know it, Jim. Uh, I, you know, I, I said I was going to shoehorn some Scottish football reference in here, but it's exactly like that. It looks like football. Um, they, they kick a ball around, but it's not as nice to watch. <laughs> um, <laughs> So anyway, but um, you you are absolutely uh, you know you, you you're spot on. The thing is that there's no uh, one single great big ugly vendor that's going to come and uh, audit you on a on a semi annual basis to um, to extract more uh, revenues for them to hit their targets. Um, the, interestingly, there are some active uh, legal legal people uh, in this world. You you probably can imagine so. Uh, iText is one of the organizations actually who are you know are quite keen on spotting where people have used their uh, their tool set within or, or their components within the code and are checking to make sure whether or not you've correctly licensed that if you're using the the GPL license or the GPL license um, that you're you're adhering to that you're doing things like um, making your source code available 
and licensing your entire application under GPL. Those are our two requirements. And if you're not doing that, then they, they say, well, you look, you're breaking the terms of the, the GPL license, so we'll, we'll have some money off you. Thank you very much. Otherwise, you can publish your source code, um, which obviously brings in a whole bunch of security concerns. Artifacts is uh, another one. And actually, there was uh, an article from just a few weeks ago where Artifacts were taking Siemens to court. Um, they've got a product called GhostScript. And um, uh, again, similar kind of thing. They're looking to, to extract some money from, from Siemens because they feel that one of their applications, one of the Siemens application uses their software and they haven't correctly adhered to an open source license. So it, it's coming. I guess that kind of that kind of legal that legal pursuit thing. There's there's also a few developers kicking around. One of the things they do, which is quite interesting, they go to the lower courts in Germany, uh, and they get a cease and desist order for about twenty euros, and then they'll come to you and say, "You're using my software and you've not licensed it correctly. Um, here's a cease and desist order, so you can stop using it, stop selling it. Your customers can stop selling it." And of course, you say, "Well, hang on, uh, how do we make this go away?" And they'll say right well i'll i'll choose not to i shall choose not to enforce the terms of the license if you give me some money um and there's there's one of these guys is um he, he's into seven figures now uh, and if i count up my numbers right that that makes him probably a millionaire uh, from wow. basically contributing to the linux kernel and then going around and, and and suing companies for for not um adhering to the gpl licenses correctly so so that so that happens um but I, sorry i'm just thinking about that so does that mean so if people had done what they were supposed to do you wouldn't have earned any money because it's all open source and and free but but because people aren't adhering to the rules he's, he's able to kind of find them for it is that is that right yeah exactly so i mean that's kind of the risk isn't it you know if you if you <laughs> It's like any licensing thing. So this is where it comes back to software asset management. If you read the terms and conditions of the license and you adhere to that, then there's no risk to your organization. If you don't uh, ad adhere to the terms and conditions correctly, then you're introducing a risk because somebody might catch up with you. And that's exactly the same, you know, whether it's IBM, Oracle, Microsoft, whatever. But the same thing applies here. Um, so it, it's a very familiar story for, for software asset management people. Oh, well, but, but it could be kind of everyone knows, you know, with, with traditional software, you, you, you pretty much know your, uh, you know, potential problems are going to be, you know, you know, to watch out for Microsoft, IBM, SAP, Quest, etc. But I suppose what you're saying, you know, that you're using hundreds of different bits of open source across a, a regular business, that could be hundreds of different unknown quantities that you could all pop up and say right you know now you need to give me x amount of money to to not enforce the license yeah and in theory yes absolutely i mean is this happening to a british business every single day quite possibly not but i mean there are some stories uh you know which are hitting the press like the like the siemens one uh with, with artifacts um, and, you know, we've had a couple of organizations approach us and say, hey, guys, iText have been in touch. What, what do we do? How do we find out? <laughs> Where is it? What is it? Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, some developer, it could be a junior developer from like eight years ago, has incorporated iText in, 
maybe unwittingly. <laughs> it's maybe not even you know massively exposed in the code, but it's in there. And if you haven't adhered to the licenses correctly, then then you know you've introduced a risk into the business. But you know I don't want to overplay it. You know the, the companies use. Uh, open source components in their software all the time and, and as you know nearly every organization now is a software company everybody's everybody's got apps um, and it's just a case of understanding what's in there we, we recommend and the, the you know this this new standard the standard which will become recommends creating a thing called the bill of materials um, for every application and I've, I've, I've likened this before. One of my blogs talks about this. It's a bit like homebrew, right, and beer. So if, if you go into the supermarket and buy a beer, uh, it's got a, a list of ingredients on the side of it. And so you know exactly what's in that beer. Uh, and that's effect, effectively what a building materials is. It's an ingredients list. Um, but if you were to come to me and buy some homebrew, I'll guarantee my homebrew, it's not bad. It'll, it'll taste like beer. It'll look like beer. But you haven't got a clue what's in there. Um, and so you're <laughs> introducing that risk into your, your environment or, or your body, probably. Because um, you, don't, you don't know you could be allergic to any of those things. So, so we advocate creating this thing called the bill of materials or the ingredients list, whatever you want to call it. And then obviously being able to track those, uh, those ingredients. And then the... the other advantage of that, once you know all the, the ingredients that are in there, you can keep an eye on uh, security vulnerabilities. And in fact, some of the tools allow you to do this automatically. They'll, they'll ping you and say, you've got such and such a component, you need to update it because uh, you know, there's a new high, uh, very important patch being released for this, or there's a new hack being released for, for this um, particular component. Um, and I'll, I'll give you... Um, uh, a good example of this is there's a component, very common component, component uh, called OpenSSL, um, and it sits at the centre of lots of, of web apps. Uh, and it's not like it's not like a bad piece of code; it's just it, it sits right in the middle of everything, so it gets hacked quite a lot. And um, about three or four years ago, there's a famous hack of OpenSSL called Heartbleed, and uh, yeah, I remember that. Heartbleed, do you remember Heartbleed? There was yeah. a few few people around the UK got, got stung with it. Um, one of the county councils, they, they lost some data. Um, but we're, we're now sort of 15, 16 versions on from Heartbleed, right? Um, but you can, you can go to Shodan, you can literally search for uh, things around the internet which use a certain version of OpenSSL prior to Heartbleed. So you can you can literally look for things to hack. Um, you can uh, also then look up on the internet how to hack heart, you know, that Heartbleed vulnerable <laughs> item because people haven't updated their components. Um, and it is amazing what, what you can find out there. There's ships, for example, running servers with uh, OpenSSL, really old versions of it. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> that's something that you can you can go and look around the globe and identify um potential targets if that's what that's what you want to do it's uh, it's quite quite kind of scary stuff really so so, so, you, so you mentioned shodan is that the i think i've seen this before is that the like like google for hackers kind of i, I remember seeing something where where it, that's what you use it's like a website that you use to find all these different uh 
internet connected items yeah exactly um you know you might think that i couldn't possibly comment obviously uh, uh i'm certainly not a hacker rich don't don't get me wrong um <laughs> You, yeah, it's a directory directory of items connected to the internet. So you um, and then it will expose certain, you know, certain features of of what's running. And one of the things you can look on is OpenSSL, and it, and it it really is genuinely quite scary because there's there's something like two hundred thousand um, instances of OpenSSL running in a version which was prior to Heartbleed which, as I say, was a, a good few years ago now and, and multiple patches released since. And you can literally ping them and go, oh, there's one. Where is that? And, it'll, you know, have a look on the IP address and it will tell you exactly where on the globe it is. Um, so keeping this kind of thing up to date is obviously reducing the risk or the attack surface for your, for your, for your organization. It's an, it's an incredibly important thing to do. So um, uh, I've, got, I've got so many questions for you now. Um, so, so I'm thinking, so obviously... The first thing is you need to know that you've got it. You know you don't know what you don't know, and and, and all the, all that kind of thing. Um, but I, I guess so. It won't just be for things that you as a company have, have developed, then, will it? I mean, this would apply if you're buying software in from other vendors, large and small. I guess they could be using open source in their products and never never mentioning it to you. Absolutely. And, and I guess, you know, I mentioned at the start, open chain, and that's where the chain bit comes in, because it is literally a digital supply chain of uh, things that are coming into your risk, if you want, or, or potential risk coming into your organization. And it's a bit like if you think about, you know, car manufacturing, you know, anyone that went to, to business school or whatever in the, in the 1990s or 2000s or 1980s in some people's cases not mentioning anybody but you, you would have learned all about supply chain you know the fact that in japanese manufacturing organizations that you know the engineer literally put their hand out and there was a, a wing mirror passed to them which had only just arrived and it was attached in there um, and it was all that lovely supply chain theory stuff that that sort of feels a bit like it's been consigned to history but actually we need to dig all that stuff up again as we go through uh, digital transformation because people need to realize that actually what they've introduced into their organizations by having, having an app on a phone it is a digital supply chain. Um, and if you're, I mean, one of the biggest risks, for example, is if you, you think, okay, I've got a great idea. We're going to create a, a mobile app for our product and you outsource the development of that application. You'll probably write a specification. You don't have developers on staff, so you go out to market. Somebody gives you a, a price. Um, you give them a specification, they will write something to that specification and give it back to you. And then what you'll probably do is a bunch of functional testing. Yep, does exactly what we want. Uh, fantastic, we're good to go. Or we'll maybe do some some penetration testing on it. But actually, you you still haven't got a an ingredient list as to what's in there and how to protect it going forward or whether it's even up to date in the first place. I've seen examples of people that have outsourced application development and the components it works fine works beautiful looks very modern but the components that are in use are about 12 years old and um that happens because you know the developers get given the spec to write something and they've got a little memory stick that they plug in the, into the machine with all the components that they like using and they literally drag them on uh, and fill in the code in between these components like a, 
a beautiful patchwork quilt. Um, but that memory stick is, is kind of at the, the root of the supply chain and hasn't been updated for a couple of years. So they're, they're using out of date components. They're automatically building in um, you know, vulnerabilities into these applications, uh, but they work beautifully and they look fantastic. So it's really about doing that kind of due diligence on your, uh, on your te- uh, digital supply chain of all the bits of software that come into your organization. Oh, whoa. Uh, and and I'm, I'm imagining, you know, and you'll probably know better than me, but I'm, I'm guessing most organizations don't have a person whose job this is. Um, so, so even if an organization you know, decides that they should do it, then you've got the problem of, you know, which team is it sitting? You know, is it legal? Is it asset management? Do you expect the development team to do it? I, I suppose there's a whole... Uh, that whole thing as well exactly um, and it is that is one of the main problems is you see that kind of unknown resource that has responsibility for it um, and we're we starting to see an increasing number of calls which is great obviously for us um, <laughs> for, for organizations saying can, can you come and just teach us how do we how do we do this right what do, what do we need to think about what do we need to worry about um, but then the other thing that you see quite often or we see quite often is um, during a merger or an acquisition um, you can imagine right if a, a company's uh, about to get sold and they've got software at the core of their business the person buying that is going to want to do a little bit of due diligence on the software does it do what it's supposed to do etc am i buying a whole bunch of security vulnerabilities how good is it um, and we get asked on a regular basis to come in. It's like it's like buying a house and getting a survey, right? So we provide the survey of the uh, of the software, and we'll, we'll take a run through the software and come back and say, "Yeah, this isn't good," <laughs> uh, or "This is this is very good. It's very up to date." We we saw one recently, and it was incredibly up to date. They, they all they only had a small number of problems, but we've seen the other end of the spectrum, where the 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 software's just got lots of things. Uh, unpatched uh, that haven't been thought about uh, quite often it's been uh, the development's been outsourced and the copyright's all wrong um, so you look at the value of the business and it just exactly you would as you would do with the survey for the house you know you start negotiating against that and sort of saying well actually you it doesn't look like you own this software and yet that's part of your valuation because it's copyrighted to some third party in Vietnam that wrote your software um, so, you know, the scenarios are quite interesting and it only see, at the moment, the popular time is when you get to those critical business points like a merger, like an acquisition um, or, uh, you know, somebody trying to raise capital, those kind of things. But we are starting to see the bigger companies look at it as a, a standard part of um, product development. So medical devices companies, for example, um, obviously they want to make sure that their products are as secure as possible um and and reviewing the code is, is something that they're they're starting to do in, in kind of en masse really um i think probably the best example is uh, in in relation to due diligence is probably uh marriott who is recently you probably saw that in the press i would imagine yeah, yeah so marriott were fined 99 million pounds because um they they had bought starwood hotels you probably got the Starwood Hotels group card because everybody get, gets given a, got given a free gold one. 
never quite understood that. You get a free gold one. Anyway, um, and um, uh, they'd been hacked for a period of about four years. They'd, they'd had a kind of uh, uh, breach, um, and Marriott purchased them right in the middle of that. And um, the, the leak continued, and eventually Marriott management found it. Um, they've obviously they've gone to the ICO's office and they've said, look, there's been an issue and we've lost data out onto the internet, et cetera. Um, and they, they, in the end, they didn't actually get a lot of sympathy because what the ICO's office said is, look, you should have done more due diligence. Um, you should have had a look at the application. It was one of the th things that you featured as part of the purchase of this hotel group. You featured that as part of, you know, a good thing for your customers. And, um, you know, it's been busy leaking data onto the internet. So you, so your responsibility was to do the due diligence during the acquisition. Um, that has a knock-on effect, interestingly, because normally when a, when a company purchase goes through, there's a certain amount of money goes into escrow. So if there's a problem with the company purchase, then um, you, you just sort of take some of that money out of uh, the escrow account in order to remediate it. But 99 million pounds is a very, very big <laughs> escrow account. So, <laughs> so um, if we, uh, you know, lawyers are starting to look at mergers and acquisitions and say, well, actually, hang on, we need to, we need to have a closer look at the software because there's no escrow account is going gonna, is gonna to be able to cover a fine of that size from the, from the ICO's office. Oh, wow. So, so, so if they'd have had, so, so is it, can you say kind of, if they'd have had better uh, policies and procedures and things around the open source, that, that, that probably wouldn't have happened? Well, I say, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say open source. I don't actually know. I don't think they've actually released which component um, in uh, right. that scenario was responsible, but certainly if they had better processes around software development, um, then you know that wouldn't have happened. Um, but it's more about the the drivers in the industry. You know, it's more about the fact that technical due diligence or or, or you know analyzing software, understanding the components of, that are there, understanding what your attack surface is, is coming from lots of different angles, coming from the legal environments, coming from you know these these mergers and acquisitions, etc. And that's where we're seeing the the, the sort of growth in demand and and the interest in, in actually just thinking about your digital supply chain, thinking about your products and, and just getting to an ingredients list as a, as a basic first step. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i I'm writing down so many things there that I need to, you know, that, that it's made me think of and, and things that, you know, conversations I've had where now I think, oh, actually, you know, it, it's, it's a whole new, whole new world isn't it uh, you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna break out into song but uh, <laughs> no, go on <laughs> josh groban would be proud go for it but and, and this is the interesting thing isn't it because it, it is a whole new world and i'm not going to sing either um but it's so familiar to us uh you know as software asset man or it asset management um people um it's just that historically we've been a little bit frightened to go and talk to developers quite frankly <laughs> um <laughs> And and maybe actually not actually not had that as part of a remit, um, but if I look at an organisation now, yeah, you've still got a lot of the historical risk, like you know the IBM and Oracle, etc. But I think I you know hacks on an organ on a company 
are devastating in terms of corporate value. And you, you can secure, you know, the perimeter, if you like, but if the problem's already been baked into, you know, the way that you've, you've built your security, you need to sort that out as well. So, yeah, it should be familiar to everybody that's, uh, that's listening to this, for sure. Yeah, so, so you, you say that you can protect the perimeter, but some, something, you, something you mentioned earlier that made me think about uh, Internet of Things. Uh, I saw online yesterday that someone's invented a, a wheelie bin that can take itself out to the, to, to the pavement so you don't have to go and put your bins out in the morning. Fantastic. Um, I'll have two. And you can control that from, your, from an app. So, you know, if you're, if you're on holiday and you've forgotten to put the bins out, etc., um, you know, which actually sounds quite useful. But it kind of got me thinking when you were talking earlier that all these things, you know, I mean, the, the, probably the due diligence around making some of these Internet of Things devices, you know, maybe isn't as high as it could be. Um, you know, you don't quite know what bits it's got in it um so is that you know as internet of things becomes more prevalent does that uh kind of exacerbate this uh open source security and, and bill of materials problem absolutely i mean uh, internet iot scares me you, you know genuinely i wouldn't say it keeps me awake at night if i'm being honest with you, but it does yeah. it does worry me um i saw a brilliant uh demonstration recently um, and it was a, a, a professor at Exeter University, and he was demonstrating this really cheap home light bulb, and um, the kind of thing that you know you can connect up to one of those talking uh, speakers in your house. And he he was demonstrating the fact that this was available for like two or three pounds. So obviously, the only way that you're going to be able to put the software together for that is by using open source software. You're not going to pay, you know, thousands of developers, thousands of hours to be able to put the software together for that. Um, and he hacked into this light bulb. And the way he hacked into this light bulb was because the light bulb has a web server on it. So again, you know, what are you the components? <laughs> what are you what are your components that are on that device? And this had one of the components I had on there was a very, very simple web server so that which which effectively allowed you to have, you know, uh, ins and outs out conversations at a, at a digital level with this with this light bulb. Um and it was wide open. You know, there was no there was no kind of like firewalling on it. You could just literally go and uh, hammer this this um uh, this light bulb and get into your home network from from there. So, yeah, it was it was an amazing presentation. Um, but it shows you the kind of thing you know if you if you don't understand what that ingredient list is, if you haven't thought about the code that's actually gone into your product, then you really are just you know you're kind of opening the doors and shepherding in the burglars really. Yeah, uh, and I guess it extends the whole the very definition of being a an IT asset manager, you know, if if light bulbs, wheelie bins, uh coffee machines, all this kind of thing, if they all suddenly become things with web servers, you know, entry points into the organization, then you know, one could argue that the asset management would need to know, you know, whether it's your your software team or your hardware team would need to know right, you know, where are our seven thousand eight hundred and four IoT light bulbs. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's. I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago seeing something 
was a coffee machine that could connect. Someone has managed to get it to connect to an exchange server. Um, and I remember pointing out, you know, technically, you know, you, you would need a cow for that coffee machine if you can get your emails on it. Um, but, you know, I mean, that was a, a, a very unusual scenario. But I, I guess this idea of anything internet connected would technically be an asset. Yeah, I remember seeing one, you know, when it was at Microsoft and, and the, the the partner that we were working with and they'd, they'd gone to look at a hospital and um, there was this device kept on coming up and it was a Samsung E2000 something, blah, blah, blah. And it, it kept on popping up as a device on the uh, on the Discovery. Um, and of course, no surprises, it's a fridge. Um, <laughs> but some someone had decided to plug it into the network for the hospital. and uh although the fridge interface was there behind that was a full copy of linux um and, and bluetooth was available and it was easy to connect a keyboard to it um, so you know and it was in a public part of the hospital so you know you've got a nice quite a simple um a, a attack area to go after so yeah it's you've got to think about all these different all these different digital contributions to your business unfortunately that's the world that we live in nowadays yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things I find as well, and we say it quite a lot, is that, you know, asset managers these days maybe need to be a bit more proactive about going into out to their business and saying, basically, what are you lot up to? Uh, you know, you can, you know, you can pretty much, you know, if someone signed, you know, some new Microsoft or some new Oracle, yeah, that's going to find its way to, to asset management, probably. But, you know, with things like, you know, containers, Internet of Things, all this open source, cloud, you know, infrastructure as a service, SaaS, there are more and more things which, you know, people can be doing and maybe it will never occur to them that they should tell ITAM. So, you know, we're, we're kind of saying you need to go out, see what people are doing. And, and I think you've highlighted, uh, you know, maybe three or four more areas on this session that people need to add to that list yeah i'll give you i mean just i've got i just happened to have in front of me rich it's almost <laughs> like we planned some of that but um there, there's an open source risk and security analysis report done this year they do one every year and they're, they're really fascinating reading but just to scare the living daylights out of everybody that's listening <laughs> um there's some really good good things in there like um 85% of the code bases that were out there had components that were at least 4 years out of date right? 85%, that's the vast majority, right? Had uh, components over four years out of date. So that's kind of goes back to the whole heart bleed thing. The average age of a vulnerability in the code base was six and a half years old. 43% uh, of the code bases that they had to look at during the survey had vulnerabilities that were over 10 years old. So well-known, well-established, well-hacked vulnerabilities. Um, and then the rate of new vulnerabilities is about 16,500 a year. So, you know, that's a job of work to keep on top of it. And it's like you said right at the start, you know, the way, the way, the way to do that, first of all, you need to understand what you've got. So, yeah, getting out, getting out in the business, uh, band around some of those statistics, see if you can frighten the developer into giving up some information and, and, and giving you some, some sort of remit over the over the, the digital stuff, whether it's IoT or web service or whatever in, in your organization. It's, it sounds like a, 
well, uh, you know, how else are you going to fill, fill a weekend, right? <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> especially uh, now now the summer's ended in the UK. You know, got some need something to do on the on the dark winter nights. Yeah, long dark nights. Yeah, get into some uh, get get your head around some open source components. That's that's the way to go. So, so with the was it forty three percent of them that have got vulnerabilities that are ten plus years old? Yeah. Have you got any idea, and it might be you know, a combination of both, is that because people just aren't good at patching, you know, which we, we see in the proprietary software world as well, or is it because people just don't know that those components are within their business, or is it probably a mix of both? Yeah, it's a, mi- it's a mixture of, of quite a few things. It's a bit like, um, you know, software asset management 10 years ago it was like buying a fire extinguisher for the house right after you'd had your first fire the first thing the most important thing for you to do is to go out and buy a fire extinguisher and then you don't use it for a little while um and then obviously as more companies got hit more companies had had problems you find more or more houses of fire extinguishers um but more people had software asset management capabilities or were going out and looking for professional uh, uh assistance um so there's there is an element of that we we're still kind of in in our infancy as far as this uh, industry is concerned um i think there is a little bit of you know developers are really tasked on uh, and I feel I do I feel sorry for developers. It's kind of easy to blame them, you know. Look at all these statistics and say, well, the developers should be doing a better job. But the developers are tasked with getting new features out, you know, to to get things working, to do bug fixes in their own code. Um, they're not really given responsibility for for patching. I, I did a, a conference about a year ago, and and a guy came up to me after the, the presentation and he said, I've got seven people in my team. And every single one of them is focused on creating new features. Nobody's looking backwards. Wow. I can't believe it. And he said, he said, I can't believe it. I've just never thought about it. I've never thought about all the customers that are using the previous version, how we patch them, how we sort, of sort them out. All the, you know, the stuff that's already in our code that's just been sitting there rock solid. And I never thought that would be what they call an attack vector. Um, he said, I've just never thought about it, Paul. Why, why have I not thought about it? He's, he's having like a crisis in front of me, like getting into counselling. It's like a Man United fan, just you know, just disappearing into. Oh, sorry, but sorry, right? Let's, um, let's not go there. Yeah, let's not go there. But you see, I mean, you kind of get my point, really. It's easy to blame the developers. It, it, you know, it's everybody's responsibility. It's certainly something that should be on the risk register for an organisation. Should certainly think about it. Um, and at the very least, at the very least, um, start thinking about having, you know, a, a, an ingredients list or, or a bill of materials for the, the, the stuff that that um, either you're buying in or you're creating yourself or you're outputting to your customers. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think. So would you say that that would be the the number one takeaway? So so the. All, all the people listening, you know, if, if there's kind of one thing that they do after listening to this, you know, what once they've finished panicking about the the, the potentials of uh, of open source, you know, to, to to get a grip on it, you know, would you say that that's the first thing to do to to work internally to to draw up that that bill of materials? I think probably the number one thing would be to get it, try and get it on the risk register, 
Yeah, so to try and get it read, uh, recognized at senior levels in the organization um, that, that actually, you know, that digital supply chain needs to be thought about, that that, that is an, um, a risk for the organization. And then break it down into smaller parts. Um, and, you know, one of those parts is going to be going and talking to the developers, whether they're in-house or they're, they're external. It's almost easier, actually, if they are external, because you can just turn around and say to them, right, we want to build the materials and let them worry about how they get to the bill of materials. But yeah, absolutely. It's just get it on the risk register. Start thinking about things as a digital supply chain. Um, don't look at them as being kind of features and functionality. Start, you know, take the opposite view and think about it as being a risk to the organization. And um, by the way, I've got this view in my head or this vision in my head of, of um, you know, in the Minions movie, and there's one of the little Minions has got like a, a, a light on his head when and things go things go wrong and they start running around and go, ah! um, yep. I think we might have achieved that with your listener base. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Possibly, but I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's good to, to know about these things. Uh, and I guess, you know, I mean, I'm yet to meet an asset manager who's, who's got some spare time. So I, I guess one of the things that people can do is if they look at look at what needs to be done and try and work with other stakeholders to break it down and say right you know, legal you can do this bit procurement you do this bit devs you do this bit asset management we'll do this bit rather than trying to take on the, the whole thing uh, as, as part of asset management i think breaking it down um should make it hopefully a, a more manageable project yeah Absolutely. Recognize the problem, first of all, definitely. And then, like you say, break it down into chunks. One of the, one of the things is to have, have a policy. Policies sound dead boring, don't they? But like, even if it's written on the, on the back of a beer mat that just says, we're not going to have this, we're not going to have that, we're you know, going to keep our, keep our components up to date, we're not going to entertain GPL if, it's, um, if that's appropriate. It's not always appropriate. I mean, it might be a university and they might want to encourage GPL, but that's the whole point of having a policy that's relevant for your organization. So yeah, recognize the problem, break it down into chunks, maybe create a policy. What, what does this risk or this problem mean to you as an organization? Um, and then probably some, you know, make sure that somebody has got responsibility for those building materials. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, that is, sounds like a good place to start for me. Um, and I think that's a, also a good place to, to to end this podcast because I've got a feeling we could still be a, a, you know, at least this time tomorrow talking about this. There's so much to to think about and explore and I, I've got various notes I've scribbled down that I'm going to um, have to follow up on later on. Um, so I think you know with that thank you very much. I've, I've learned a lot um, and I, I thought I was getting getting to grips with this, so uh, it turns out I wasn't. Uh, so, so thanks for thanks for that. Um, and, and I think you know it, everyone, I'm sure, will have taken something away. So, uh, so Paul McAdam from Source Code Control, thank you very much. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me. And I guess we will maybe come down, come along another time, and um, explore it in a little bit further detail. Version two, let's call it. Sounds like a plan. I'll um, I'll get a bill of materials together for you before then, of course. Excellent, and, good man. Uh, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll do it again soon. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye.
Bye.